0: Today is the second Sunday in Advent, the second Sunday of the new church year. I've said it before, and I'll keep reminding you that our prayer book is like a toolbox. It contains a number of tools which are designed to make a Christian. They are tools of discipleship, and if you'll use them, you will be a better disciple of Jesus. One of those tools is the calendar. We have lots of calendars that order our lives. The civil calendar, of course, counts time and tells us those things in our history that we are supposed to celebrate New Year's Day, Martin Luther King Day, Memorial Day, the 4th of July, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, and so on. Calendars are particular to peculiar and peculiar to cultures. Guy Fawkes Day is important to the British, apparently. You may not know what it is, and I don't know a lot about it. I don't have feelings for it. I just know that it involved King James I and a plot to blow up Parliament with gunpowder, which failed to explode. And now they remember, remember the 5th of November, and you don't know what I'm talking about. That's because it's not your calendar. Other calendars we live by include football season. It begins in the warm days of late summer and carries us week by week through tailgating Saturday or Sunday afternoons in front of the TV. My wife doesn't care for it, but I not only like to watch football, but I like to putter around in my garage on a fall afternoon. That is, if I'm not paying attention to the other calendar, which is deer season, I like to putter around in my garage with a football game In the background, just listening to the white noise, there's some sort of weird comfort in that, listening to a good narrator, and then every now and then it gets loud with a touchdown. I just like it. The same is true for baseball. There is no greater sport for radio than baseball. It's fun to watch on TV, but boy, it's great on radio. Many of us in this parish live on the academic calendar. We start school in mid-August, a new year, without the Happy New Year's, and we're always surprised at how quickly Christmas comes. And then, as I mentioned, there's deer season, a whole different calendar that regulates how time is spent. For some of us, we go from bow to black powder to rifle season to late black powder and finally late archery, and we spend hours in the woods, usually coming up empty, but oh, How sweet it is. But the church calendar is one calendar to rule them all. If the civil calendar gives us President's Day, the church calendar commemorates the life of our Lord, reminding us repetitively of his birth, his life, the important things that he did, and it tells us when to feast, it tells us when to fast. It tells us when to pray, it tells us when to be quiet, it tells us when to mourn, and it tells us when to be noisy. It does all of those things such that I tell inquirers to the Anglican way to just decide to spend a whole year, if you're new with us, perhaps visiting here, sojourn with us for a whole year because you have to surrender to the rhythm of the year, which at first may feel a bit like wearing a fat man's jacket. It won't fit just right, but with luck, you'll grow into it. I gave Scott Speaks that challenge a year ago, and he did it. He and Julie and Shelton have been sojourning with us now for a year, and guess what? Not only have they grown into the fat man's jacket, but Julie got elected to the vestry like in one year. Saw that happen last week. See what great things can happen? You too can be a vestry member in short order. During the long shadows of the days of Advent, we quiet our hearts and make ourselves receptive to the Spirit of God in a renewed way. Advent, above all the seasons of the church year, is about orientation. In these successive uh, four weeks, we situate ourselves liturgically into the same space occupied by those before the coming of Jesus. And our piety is particularly sensitive to Advent and is shaped by it, especially when, we, when seen as the memory of the preparation for the coming of the Messiah. We, the people of God, are deeply conscious of the long period of expectation that preceded the birth of our Savior. We seek to inhabit that world for a whole month, which, of course, we can't quite do any more than we can relive what life in America was like before July the 4th. 1776. But one way to do it, one way to do it best is to read the texts that are recorded for you in that part of the toolbox called the lectionary. Read the scriptures and read them from the perspective of one who lived before Christ. Suspend judgment and pretend that you don't know Jesus and read those texts and see what they do for you. The texts in the lectionary contribute today to our spiritual formation with a single foundational truth. The lesson today is very simple. Here it is. It's told to us the same way in both the epistle and the gospel. First, the gospel Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And St. Paul. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The epistle and the gospel agree. The Scriptures are the Word of God. They are the very words of the living God, and they were written for our learning, for our instruction. They were written for our encouragement, and they are therefore the basis of of all hope. Now when I do chapel and during Advent for my students, I often ask them about these candles that hang up here and what they might mean. And I get a variety of answers. Many of them come from evangelical churches where they don't acknowledge Advent and I suppose that's okay. They're they're missing out. But I ask them um, about the candles and what they might symbolize and eventually we get down to the business of counting. And then I asked him something like this. When a birthday is coming up, how many of you have thoughts like, it's just 10 days to my birthday? Last Sunday, little Mary came up to me and said, it's my birthday. I said, today? She said, no, next Sunday. And I asked her today, is it your birthday today? And she said, no, it's actually tomorrow she has been thinking about it for at least eight days. Now, she's probably been looking forward to it for more than that. Time is a funny thing for children. One of my sixth grade girls last year said, I'm thinking about my birthday. And I asked her when it was, and she said, at the end of February. Well, that's months away, and she's already counting. The point is that her birthday had two effects. She was measuring time by counting the days. And secondly, she was oriented toward a future happiness of which she was quite confident. Now, children participate or anticipate their birthdays with hope. A birthday is singularly about the child. Parties, pictures, and presents are involved, and there's always cake and ice cream, which tastes better somehow on a birthday. When we say that a child in this parish or elsewhere is looking forward to his or her birthday, we understand that none of the children of the parish, for one second, doubts that mom and dad are going to forget, or that mom and dad will somehow disappoint. Birthdays are for children, and they are held in the sacred sobriety of what we call hope. The party is a future reality to be sure, but the party is never in doubt. A child lives in hope for their birthday singularly because they trust the veracity of their parents. That's what hope is. In a very similar way, today's theme to which our calendar commands our attention is simply this, hope. When we talk about Christian hope, and particularly eternal life, we are talking about a future reality, to be sure. But we define that reality with the single word, hope. And this word does not imply for a moment a hope-so calculation of probability. We are not playing the odds. A Christian lays hold of hope as a firm, albeit unreached, reality. True hope is grounded in reality and acknowledges the difficulties and struggles of life, but it is not an escape from reality. It is a transformative force that helps us engage with reality more authentically. Hope is one part of that triad of virtues you know as faith, hope, and love. We call them theological virtues because we say that they are infused in our being by virtue of our creation. You know, it's not really easy to explain where the moral motions of love come from, but they spring up in your heart from the earliest time that you can remember. You have affection for your parents simply because you are, and they are. You have attachment for things and for people. You have an attachment for God himself, who is the chief end of all of our loves. We say that it's in our nature, broken as we are, that human beings are believing beings. We say that we are loving beings, and dare I say, we are also hopeful beings, The theological virtues are born into us and perfected by the Spirit of God. And these are the virtues that most powerfully orient us to God. Like faith and love, hope is unique. It is the one virtue that reveals that we are, can we put it this way, on the way. We are on a journey, precisely because it is a not-yet-proposition Life becomes a journey to attain things that we do not currently possess. More particularly, life is a process of becoming that which we are not now. Hope is future-oriented. It directs our gaze toward what lies ahead and sustains us in the face of uncertainties. As long as man exists in the world, he is characterized by this inward quality of being on the way to somewhere else. This is what hope does for us. Our lives are characterized as becoming and not yet being fully what we shall be. The audience to which St. Paul wrote this morning was certainly a Gentile church. In the short space of the epistle lesson this morning, Paul transfers to this group of people the cornerstone of the ancient Jewish community to the Gentile world. There were two things that the Jews possessed in abundance, nurtured for centuries, and these two things would be equally necessary for Gentiles who were newly introduced to the kingdom of God. Two things. First, The Gentile world would need to learn and they would adopt from their Jewish neighbors the mindset that the word of God, God's speech, is the mainspring of faith and belief. In speaking to men, God does not merely reveal objective facts about nature or anything else, but he throws open to us His own being. I am the Lord. There is none else. I am Yahweh. The one who was and who is and who shall be. These are not mere statements about how the world was made or what water is like. These are revelations about the character of God himself. When God speaks, he reveals to us who he himself is And the Yahweh of the Jews speaks to men. And when he speaks, very often, and this drives unbelievers crazy, when God speaks, he dates it. Yeah. Here's one example. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign... It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. That's when God spoke to Jeremiah. He dated it. By the way, when we read the scriptures from week to week here, your prayer book has another little tool. You've probably noticed it. That when God speaks to us in his word and we read it, the church prompts you to respond in gratitude. And so we say together, thanks be to God. Do you know, after all, God didn't have to speak to us and he certainly didn't have to write it down or date it. But he did. And the posture of our hearts when we sit under the reading of the very word of the God of Israel is to be overwhelmed and overcome with a posture of gratitude and receptivity. The Gentiles would have to learn this, that God speaks, and that when he speaks, it is a good thing. It is the fundamental driver of faith, which issues ultimately in hope. The Gentile world, secondly, would have to learn that the scriptures, those things written in former days, for our learning that is our instruction when we come to the church the Bible, the whole of it when you come into the company of the people of God the whole Bible becomes your property the story of God's people becomes your story the Jewish patriarchs become our fathers and their history becomes our history it is now our story Believing God's word, what we call faith, is the foundation of hope. Hope arises from faith in the promises of God. Faith provides the assurance and conviction that God is trustworthy and faithful to his promises. It establishes the groundwork for a hopeful orientation towards the future. Faith contributes to the stability and the endurance of hope. And while hope looks toward the future and anticipates the fulfillment of God's promises, faith anchors this anticipation in the unchanging and reliable nature of God. Hope that is delinked from faith in the scriptures is the very definition of doubt and reduces faith to nothing more than wishful thinking. Faith and hope are inseparable. You imagine the poor orphan who has no parents? The poor orphan who has no parents does not look forward to his birthday. He may not even know the day he was born. Because the hope of a birthday is predicated upon the character of parents who actually exist, who love the child, and who never forget the day they brought him into the world. Likewise, if God has really spoken, then it is good to believe him. Receptively and trustfully, hearing the truth, we gain a share not only in the knowledge of God, but in life itself. Jesus would say, the words that I have spoken unto you, they are spirit, they are life. The opposite of hope is despair, which manifests itself in many crippling forms. But when the Christian hope is anchored in the heart of the believer, here's what it looks like. Paul, again, in his second letter to the Corinthians, rehearsing all of the persecutions, trials, and deliverances that he endured, says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's hope is grounded in what God says about the world. And thus, it is stable. A lesson the Gentiles would need to know. And finally, the Gentiles needed to know that the scriptures drive this virtue. And they needed to know that even the Old Testament Jewish scriptures foresaw and foretold that they would be participants in the great hope of Messiah. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times Paul skips around in the Old Testament showing these Gentiles that they are named in the word of God, anchoring them in the story. Four times in the text, Paul says this, I tell you that Christ came as a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, that is, to the Jews, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, but in order also that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, here's from Deuteronomy, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. From Psalms 117, and again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. From Psalms again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And if that weren't enough, from the great prophet Isaiah The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. What is Paul doing? Paul is taking a Gentile congregation back to the Old Testament and says, God spoke here, and when he spoke, he saw you. You are rooted in this story, and now because of that, you have hope. Far more powerful and reliable than a child who relies on his parents for a birthday party. In summary, hope is the virtue that confirms that we are on the way and that we are becoming what we are not. The scriptures are written for our learning and instruction. Read them. In fact, do what Thomas Cranmer so famously said in the Colic this morning. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. I don't think you could do much more than that. Because faith, finally, in the scriptures, is the great driver of hope. Because it brings to us the veracity of God himself. So we here sit in Advent, sensitive to what God is doing in our hearts and in our community. It's a time of waiting memory, as John Paul II called it. It's a time of conversion in which The liturgy calls us to repent and receive the kingdom of God, and it's a time of joyful hope that salvation, already accomplished in Christ, will flower when he comes again, most assuredly. That is our hope. Amen.